0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is out this week, so Joe Wren, the host of Ask the Mayor and Indiana Newsdesk, is sitting in with me. I've been out of the office for a couple weeks and I was participating in this program in the EU focused on refugees, migration, and border security. It was an incredible program organized by a group based in Berlin, Germany called RIOS. On today's show, we're going to talk about immigration in the EU and the U.S. and really around the world. The executive director of RIAS, Eric Kirschbaum, is joining us on the phone from Berlin. He's also a freelance journalist for the LA Times. John Burnett, who covers borders and immigration for NPR and also participated in the recent RIAS programs joining us. And Elizabeth Dunn from, uh, from the Department of International Studies at Indiana University, as well as a member of the board of directors for Exodus Refugee Immigration, joins us in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping that uh, I can just start with you, and you can just begin by just explaining to all of our listeners what RIAS really is, its mission, and why you chose to organize this recent trip focused on borders.
2: Um, RIAS was a Cold War area radio and TV station in Berlin called Radio in American Sector that beamed the news and information into East Germany, just um, sort of a counter to the fake news of the communist government and after the cold war ended in 92 the u.s and german government set up this german american exchange program for broadcast journalists and over the years 800 americans have come to germany for two or three weeks to learn more about europe and germany and about 800 germans have gone to the u.s to learn more about things in the u.s journalism politics in the u.s and we we created this program to look at border security and migration because germany has taken in more than 1.5 million refugees over the last three years, more than the rest of um, the European Union and the U.S. together. So it's a hot topic in Germany as well as in the U.S.
1: Elizabeth, I know you've spent a lot of time really researching and covering what's been going on in the EU, too. And the one thing I walked away from our trip thinking was, this is such a complex issue. I have no idea how these folks will decide how to, how to move forward. Um, what are the things that folks need to consider when looking at this complex issue of borders?
3: I think one of the things you have to think about to begin with is why people are on the move. And one of the things that we've found out is that the nature of war has changed. And it's affecting civilians. It's affecting people in urban areas now in ways that 30 years ago it would not have. So we need to think about why people are on the move. And we also need to think about... Um, productive ways to deal with people on the move, rather than just making this the responsibility of the countries surrounding a conflict zone. Germany's taken in 1.5 million people, but Turkey has taken in almost 3 million people in the last five years. So it's important to think about how we're gonna share the global burden of people
1: who can't go home. On that note, the UN just released this compact for migration. How effective might that be in terms of thinking about this globally?
3: Well, one of the problems with the Global Compact on Migration is that the U.S. actually was an initiator of this process. Barack Obama started it in 2016 with the New York Declaration. But the U.S. under Trump has pulled out of the Global Compact on Migration. One of of the interesting things about migration around the world is that it's not a country to country problem. It's a global systemic problem. And we have to deal with it as a community of nations. But right now, uh, the Trump administration would like to deal with it one nation at a time, each nation defending its own, what he thinks of as national sovereignty. I think that's unlikely to lead to a productive solution.
1: Hmm. How do you think it's being perceived in the EU, Eric? Has, Has there been much talk about it in Germany?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge
2: political issue in Germany, and um, there was a wave of humanitarianism support in the beginning. Most people really were behind it. Um, but that led to tensions in the rest of the EU because a lot of Eastern European countries in the EU didn't want to take in refugees. So there were some fissures opening up in the EU that have gotten worse and worse over the years, and now some tensions in Germany as well. And that's one of the reasons Chancellor Merkel has come under pressure in her own party and recently had to give up control the party leadership and announced she won't be running again in 2021. So it's led to all kinds of tensions in in, in the EU and Germany as well.
1: Do you think it's as, it, it is as political in the EU as it is in the US? Because I know you've also been involved here in the US in terms of the border with Mexico and covering that some.
4: Yeah,
2: it seems like a hot topic as well from the US, the caravan, and it seems like deja vu all over again for us in Europe to see that that's become such a political issue, and um, it's a complicated issue, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, but what's unfortunate is when um, political, mm, it starts to, when pl- the political debate starts to influence and, and, in a way, distort what's going on and what the problems are, and instead of having a, a sober look at what are the real problems, the causes, and, and maybe some good solutions, um, politics seems to weigh in, and, and things get used and, mis- and abused for political arguments, and, and that's unfortunate because the, the, the losers of that are, are the poorest people out there, the, the migrants themselves.
3: One of the things that's really shifted in U.S. political discourse, I think this is true in Europe as well, is that refugees used to be people that were to be protected, and today the right wing has made them people to protect from. So they're they're seen as a threat. They're seen as potential terrorists. The, those things have been radically exaggerated. And the effect has been that people who are really in need of somewhere to be because they are under threat of their lives, they are running for their lives, have no place to go. And I agree that we really need to depoliticize this situation, stop using it as a political football, and start to think about how we're going to help
1: people who have no choice to go home. Mm -hmm. It seemed like when we were traveling in the EU that a lot of people were okay with the idea of letting Syrians come in and recognizing that these folks are in crisis. This is not a safe place for them to be. It was from some of the other countries that um, I think, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but Northern Africa, um, I think Iraq was one of them too, right? Where folks aren't as aren't as welcoming. So it wasn't sort of this blanket statement that we don't want any refugees. It was we really want to make sure that they're coming from places that are unsafe and where their life is at risk.
2: Right. I mean, Germany, a lot of Germans survived World War II by getting asylum in Sweden, places like that. So Germans anchor the right to asylum in their constitution and, and every german um, is pretty supportive of people who genuinely need asylum protection and as you mentioned pretty much everybody from syria comes to germany and is welcome there's no doubt whatsoever that they're welcome to stay in germany for the duration of the war There's sort of a tacit expectation that after the war or if the war ever ends, it, most of them will go back to Syria. That's what happened in in Yugoslavia in the 90s. 900,000 people from Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, came to Germany. 600,000 went back home after the fighting stopped. Um, and yeah, you're right. Um, a lot of the people who slipped in on piggybacked in on the slipstream of the Syrian refugees from Northern Africa, Morocco, um, Algeria, um, will never get asylum in Germany. But they're they apply for asylum and then it's a a long process, It's, it's rejected, they appeal, and in the meantime they're tolerated and they can stay here for many years. And a lot of them have really no chance of ever getting asylum, but they stay in Germany and they stay um, kind of in, in low-paying jobs. And, and there is tension and there is a problem. And unfortunately, um, some some pretty awful crimes have been committed by some of these people who um, are um, on the fringes of, of asylum. Um, the terror attack in Berlin two years ago at the Christmas market was committed by a Tunisian man whose asylum application was rejected in Italy and then Germany, and he managed to slip beneath the radar, and the police couldn't quite find him, and all of a sudden he pops up in a in a stolen tractor trailer and crashes into a Christmas market in Berlin and kills more than ten people. So um, it's a, it is a touchy subject in Germany. There have been some horrible headline-making crimes committed, even acts of terror by some of the people who've come in, um, and yet in most states in Germany and most places in the EU. It, it It's not a political um, stick to beat around, it's not something most Germans um, will be automatically afraid of refugees because of the acts committed by a, a few. Um, and I guess that is a difference to the U.S., it isn't quite as politicized yet. There are parties on the far right in almost all countries in Europe, but they are pretty small usually. 10 to 15 to 20 percent. So, and they're not in power, they're not in government usually. So, um, it is it is fortunately, by and large, depoliticized de- still. But but it is a, it is a looming threat that if the numbers were to suddenly spike up again, that it could become a more of a political issue. Um, and that's one of the reasons even the German government is working with Turkey to try to keep the number of refugees coming to the EU down. And the numbers have gone way way down over the last two years, as we saw on that trip.
1: Germany, what what I sort of took away from it is they seem, the country seems very concerned about its image, and they want to be seen as doing what's humane, and they want to be seen as empathetic. And I don't know that there is necessarily that same feeling here necessarily. Um, it well, seems to be a wall or no wall.
3: I think one of the things that's really important to clarify, is that there has never been a terror attack carried out by a refugee in the United States. That has never happened. And um, so it's it's in terms of refugees, here I'm setting aside asylum seekers for a minute. In terms of refugees, in the United States, it's a very different process. We're talking about accepting people who have been extraordinarily well-vetted, who've been through a three-year process, who have had health checks, who have been through security clearance at 13 different federal agencies. So these are not people who pose any threat to us at all. And and it's really important to keep a realistic idea on risk. I mean, if you are going to risk being shot in America, you're much more likely to be shot by an American citizen than by somebody from outside the country. Um, I think that... uh, The politicization of refugees has not happened because we have more people coming into the country. In fact, what we know is that arrivals for asylum seekers are down, and they've been down before the wall. They were down because the American economy was down. We bring people in from Central America generally when we need the labor, and we throw them out when we don't need the labor anymore. That's been the historical pattern in the United States since the 1940s. So to pretend that this is a new phenomenon or a rising phenomenon or that there are more people doing this in the United States, that's not correct.
5: This seems to center around what you were kind of started the the show with was that what gets lost is why people are are immigrating. So can we get into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Why?
3: Well, um, one thing, of course, is that war increasingly is happening in cities. Um, And when war is happening in cities, you can't differentiate between combatants and noncombatants. So if Bashar al-Assad drops chlorine gas on Aleppo, right, you're going to the majority of people who will be hurt are people are just regular residents, noncombatants. So that's that's a big change. The second big change we're seeing is that people are fleeing, not just war between one country and another country, but civil conflicts that lead to total state collapse. So when you look at Afghanistan, for example, uh, the German government was deporting people saying, Afghanistan's not at war. That's, That's crazy. Afghanistan has been at war now for decades. But what's happening is that the central government no longer controls big parts of Afghanistan. It's being run by warlords. And when that happens, people, particularly people who are ethnic minorities, can be targeted and they have to run for their lives. They don't have a choice. There's no government to protect them. So when we look at you know, Afghans, Venezuelans, when we look at Hondurans, we're looking at people who are fleeing collapsing governments, the rise of warlordism and gangs. Are those folks eligible for asylum? Yes. Under the 1951 Convention on Refugees, which was written for a different age, but uh, anyone with a quote-unquote credible fear of persecution is eligible for asylum in any country, not their first country of arrival, but in any country where they claim asylum. Uh, And so they are indeed eligible um, here in the United States.
5: And the definition of refugee and and asylum seekers, are those different?
3: Yeah. And that has to do with It doesn't have to do with why you leave. It has to do with how you come in. So uh, um, there are three classes of forced migrants. There are internally displaced people, and that's two-thirds of the world's displaced people. People who have been thrown out of their homes by conflict, but who are still inside their country of origin. So there are, for example, eight million Syrians who are internally displaced. Then we have refugees, who are people who have crossed an international border, and and asked for refugee status. Um, and finally, there are asylum seekers, people who enter a country usually under other uh, other visas, is how it happens in the United States, and they. Uh, claim asylum while they're here because they're afraid to return. Mm. We have asylum seekers here at Indiana University. Many of them are graduate students uh, who are afraid of being persecuted by their home governments if they return and we're with the Bloomington Refugee support network we're helping file those cases for them
1: you know every day of the week. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about refugees and immigration. You can join the discussion by tweeting at Noon Edition or calling 812-855-0811. John Burnett is joining us now on the line as well. Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. John was on the Rios trip, and he also covers the border down in, on the U.S.-Mexico border. And, John, you're in El, in El Paso, right? Right. That's right. So yeah. I'm wondering, I mean, I think that's a really good place to start. If you can talk about the situation that we're learning is sort of evolving today. We're learning about this child who, who died. Can you explain what's happening?
4: Yeah, actually, we just got off the phone uh, with a Border Patrol official who explained some of the particulars of it, and uh, she was traveling with a big group of 163 migrants along with her dad. They were uh, coming up from Guatemala, and... Uh, They crossed at a really remote border crossing, which you rarely hear about. It's Antelope Wells, New Mexico, and this big group was apprehended, and they put them in the holding cell. And according to the Border Patrol, her father didn't say that she was sick at the time. But then uh, when a bus transferred them to a larger uh, Border Patrol station in Lordsburg, New Mexico, uh, she started vomiting, and then she stopped breathing and sent... When they got in Lordsburg, an agent tried to revive her, and they realized that she was really, really sick. And so they called an air ambulance uh, that took her to a children's hospital here in El Paso, um, where she had uh, 105.7-degree fever. Um, She got cardiac arrest. Um, Her brain was swelling, and uh, she ultimately died of liver failure the morning of um, December 9th. And so there's been criticism to the border patrol do everything they could to take care of her and um, they say um, they're doing an internal investigation but that the agents um, treated her with as as much care and compassion professionalism as they could have but obviously the border rights advocates are all screaming about it saying that um, that she shouldn't have died
1: John can you talk a little bit about just for our listeners who've never been to the border, what it what it looks like, what, what the scene is like there every day. Is this a place where you see people crossing or is it a is it a dangerous place?
4: It's not necessarily dangerous. I think it it has been in the past when the cartel wars were heating up, particularly here in, in Juarez where there was a there was a Mafia war going on. Um I was on the bridge actually I was in Juarez yesterday and on the bridge and you know, you, you can see this huge surge of immigrants we're having now. Um, more than 25,000 individual family members crossed into the U.S. just last month alone. I mean, sir, so that's an amazing figure. Um, it's a record figure. And that's now the largest group of migrants who are coming into the U.S. are these family members who are fleeing Honduras and Salvador and Guatemala because of the uh, the gang the gang control in their neighborhoods asking, you know, um, extorting everyone. And then they're also fleeing poverty, uh, you know, food insecurity in, in the rural Guatemala. But you see them at the bridges, you see them sitting and waiting to cross. Uh, you, you see them in the, in the migrant shelters here. Um, it's, uh, we're really in the midst of an enormous wave of migrants, just like Central Europe is.
3: Mm-hmm. One thing that's important to note though is that the majority of immigrants to the United States of illegal immigrants to the United States do not cross a land border they fly in they fly in with legitimate visas and they overstay their visa so if we're really interested in cracking down on illegal immigration or undocumented immigration a wall is not going to solve the problem in the majority of cases
1: mm-hmm. I want uh, to go to sorry. go ahead John yeah, um,
4: the wall, um, and in fact, most of the migrants down here are crossing at the ports of entry now because you can't get asylum if you cross the river. So they're crossing, you know, legally uh, to ask for asylum, and it's true what you said. Most of them are visa. Most of the illegal immigrants in this roughly 11, 12 million population in the U.S. are here because of visa overstays. Either they came as students or as visitors.
1: What happens when someone crosses the border, John, and says they are seeking asylum?
4: Well, first, they're given a credible fear interview um, by an asylum officer, and if they pass that, um, they're given a notice to appear in immigration court, and they're either sent to immigrant detention, if they're uh, an, an adult, or if they're a family, they're usually released with an ankle monitor and told to show up in your destination city to an immigration court. And make your case to the judge why you think you should get asylum.
1: And then is that when we've heard a lot about lots of people living throughout the country who don't make it back to those hearings? I mean, is that the majority?
4: No, it's not the majority. Um, most immigrants make their um, they show up for their um, for their check ins with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And. Um, and the last figures I saw are that if an immigrant is turned down for asylum, 40 um, percent of them don't show up and, and, and refuse to be deported, basically, and sort of melt into the Spanish-speaking population. Uh, so a larger number uh, is hard to find, but, uh, but it's not a majority, as I understand
1: it. Okay. I want to go to the phones. We have Sarah on the line, and she has a question. Go ahead, Sarah.
6: Uh, yes, um, I'm going to try to phrase it the best I can. You know, we focus on the first wave of immigrants who come in and settle and how they assimilate. But what gets ignored is that people stay here for several generations and they tend to live in neighborhoods populated by their coethnics. And um, successive generations, um, significant portions of them, do not successfully uh, assimilate. In fact, they tend <clears throat> to be antithetical. So for every uh, person of whatever descent comes in and gets a job and is, you know, relatively happy in their society and wants to embrace the host, you know, country and respect their culture. And and, uh, there's also a significant amount of those people that don't, and they actually get hostile. It's very often common to find second- and third-generation children of immigrants who are very hostile to the host country's culture and identity. And to blame that on racism only brings one element. I mean, the racism goes both ways. And it is um, important to note that uh, these communities do not uh, often successfully assimilate. For everyone who does, there's a large amount who don't. And uh, they create a hotbed of kind of resentment. And to call people's concerns, say, on the right or whatever you want to call it, and say, "Oh, that's just due to racism." Is kind of using a blunt uh, edge knife. Um, there are okay. legitimate concerns. So,
1: yeah, yeah let me. Uh, we have our panelists person. here who can can certainly address that. Yeah. Elizabeth, I want to let you weigh in, and then Eric sure. can talk about what's going on in the EU in regards to that as well.
3: Yeah, actually, that's not true. Um, Enclaves are what we call these neighborhoods of co-ethnic immigrants in the United States. And enclaves really provide a lot of advantages for newly arriving migrants who have low language skills in English, for example, and who need the support of other people who've been here longer to get jobs, to find apartments and so on. But what we see is that over time, they tend to uh, join the majority U.S. population. So a good example of that is the Vietnamese community in this country. Um, One of the reasons that nail salons in the United States are dominated by Vietnamese is because the actress Tippi Hedren started a program to teach refugees to give manicures Mm -hmm. in in the late 60s. And the Vietnamese community has used these nail salons as a way of of helping family members immigrate, but what we see is the second and the third generation are not actually staying in the nail salon business. They're fluent English speakers. They're highly educated. They're starting businesses. So one of the things that we know is that in in fact the generational effect uh, of migration seems to taper off by the second generation. Mm-hmm.
4: Can I jump in there, Sarah? Yeah. Um, I, I really agree, and I, I I disagree forcefully with your with your caller. And it's not because of things that I've read or things that I've seen or speeches that I've heard. It's because I've done the work. I mean, I've I've actually did a whole feature on on the, the Vietnamese population um, uh, in in Houston, and that's exactly uh, what your other guest said: is that the second generation, um, you know, they they honor the culture that their parents brought over from Saigon in the 70s, but they're becoming American. They're absolutely becoming an American. I mean, I have three children that I raised in Austin, Texas. They all went to Austin High School, which is majority Hispanic. They had friends whose parents were undocumented immigrants. And I can tell you that these children are American, and they're not hostile to the larger culture, and um, and they're, they're utterly assimilating. Mm-hmm.
1: I was struck when we were in the EU, you know, the we went to the water utility company and all of the work they're doing to teach them English and to even give them a a mentor, essentially, to help them learn where they go for papers or how to translate things. Um, Eric, I mean, I'd love to get your perspective just on how you think they integrate into society
2: yeah I mean, they were being taught German, not English, but yeah. oh. <laughs> thank um, the, you <laughs> the migrants and refugees coming to Germany get intensive German language courses paid by the federal government right off the bat. Um, they get three or four hundred dollars a month in 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 pocket money as well, and they try to they try to really encourage them to learn the language and integrate them as well as they can. nobody know how long nobody knows how long the war the wars will last, so they're expecting to stay for a while and and the German government realizes that well integrated um, people will probably get along a lot better and have fewer problems so um, and and the, and many of the migrants and refugees who come from Yugoslavia in the past and Syria now realize that if they do want to stay long term in Germany after the war's end, the best way to do that is to learn German quickly and and learn a skill Germans have very in-depth uh, vocational training in the last three years, and so yeah, we went to a water's work, water work in Berlin, and a lot of um, um, migrants and refugees from Syria, from Northern Africa, from Pakistan were there learning the skills of how to weld and how to work for the big, the biggest public uh, water utility in Berlin. So in a country like Germany where the population is shrinking where there is definitely a need for more migration um, the refugees and migrants are seen as as an asset by by some of the smarter people, some of the people with with foresight that realize um, this is not somebody we need to be afraid of, this is somebody who can help us solve our low birth rate problem. It doesn't always work out that well. There are some parts of Berlin where Two or three generations later, um, some of the, some of the w- women don't necessarily embrace the German culture and don't really speak German. They may be watching Turkish television the whole time. Who knows? But there are, there are pockets of, of like that as well um, that, that don't feel like Germany at all. Um, but on the most part, the, the migrants and refugees are really encouraged and almost forced to learn German from right off the bat as soon as they get here.
3: Mm. And don't forget that in the United States, these kids go into the U.S. public schools. And the public schools are teaching them English. They're conducted in English. There's ESL classes. A kid that grows up in the American public schools is enculturated into American culture. Mm
1: -hmm. We do have to to take a short break here. You are listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. Our guests are here to field your questions and comments, 812-855-0811, or you can tweet us at Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
0: The Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building. This is noon edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville online at Smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUnews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire with co-host Joe Wren today. And today we're talking about immigration and borders. And really, we're talking about this as a global issue. We have three guests today. We have Elizabeth Dunn, who is an associate professor in the Department of International Studies at Indiana University. She's also a member of the Board of Directors for Exodus Refugee Immigration. We have Eric Kirschbaum. He is a correspondent. of uh, he is a freelancer, rather, for the L.A. Times, and he's also the executive director of this RIOS program we've been talking about. John Burnett, he is the Southwest correspondent for NPR and covers the borders. So thanks again to our guests for being here. Let's start by just going right back to the phones. We have Garcia on the line. Is that all right? Go ahead with your question. No,
6: my name is Gracia. I'm sorry, Gracia. That's quite all right. It's a, think it's it's a common mistake. Oh. Um, I um, wanted to comment on Sarah's um Comments and I'll do this really quickly. I'm second generation Italian. I no longer live in the Italian community in which my family, um, my family was raised. Um, I speak English. I went to college. My all of my cousins and I have done the same thing. So we have we all. You know, we're the only ones who – we've done that. And so I also work with undocumented immigrants and other immigrants in the community. Bloomington is very different than other communities. They don't all live together. You cannot find them in a cluster. They are all working in very different jobs. Their children have already done – I can't remember your guest who's the reporter's name – are already doing what he's suggesting – their kids. Several of them are at the Kellys. Some of them gone to IU. Some of them are Ivy Tech. Some of them. Are, so they have moved on and assimilated into the Bloomington community. And I believe that across the country, that is also the case. Um, so I, I can't say that for sure. I know it's happening here in Bloomington, but I, I can't speak for the rest of the country. So the way we look at asylum seekers and refugee seekers and immigrants as living in clusters, using resources, doing all these things is, in fact, not correct. And we do see what your guests have been talking about. Okay, so Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Gracia.
1: 812 is the number to call if you have a question for one of our panelists. Elizabeth, I, I want to ask you, you know, recently with the midterm election, we were, we had some reporters who were stationed at the GOP watch party and unanimously, every person we talked to said immigration was the number one issue that drove them to the polls. Uh, so, I'm very curious to hear your response as to why you think folks in Indiana, very far away from the southern border, say that that's the number one issue on their minds.
3: Yeah, well, I think that what is happening is that people in Indiana, like people in other places that used to be manufacturing hubs around the country, are really feeling the pain of globalization, and their jobs are being exported, and they are facing competition in their own labor markets. In Indiana, we don't actually have a large immigrant Mexican population. Um, This is not California. This is not Texas. So in a certain way, Immigrants have become the scapegoats for a much larger process of economic transformation in the world today. And so just ending illegal immigration, if you could deport every illegal immigrant today, if you could stop all immigration tomorrow, the problem that people are facing in labor markets in the United States with industries leaving and factories closing, that would not change. The world is changing because of the digital revolution. The way we manufacture and consume products is changing. Our relationships with the rest of the world, like China importing into the United States are changing, and changing immigration will not change any of that.
5: Yeah, you bring up other points too, and we talk about climate change and and other things. What, What are some of the other factors that will have an effect from immigration?
3: Well, I think climate change is a huge one, and, and it'll be more complex than we think, because mm-hmm. what will happen is that it will take place as, as the world gets hotter and drier. People who are in agrarian societies simply won't be able to make a living there, and they'll start migrating into cities. But what we'll see as a result of that is um, civil conflict. Right. That that will have societies which are experiencing massive transformation and upheaval and that breaks out into conflict and that produces refugees. So that will be a, That will be a huge <laughs> issue. It's not just merely that the sea levels will rise and everybody who's underwater will run <laughs> inland. It's much more complicated than that. We're going to see different effects in different places around the world as the climate changes and as farming becomes harder to conduct.
1: Mm-hmm. Eric, I, I want to just talk, just follow up a little bit about the question about attitudes here in the U.S. during the recent election and this idea sort of, of of nationalism in the U.S. Do you see that gaining that same idea of nationalism? Is that becoming a bigger issue in the EU?
2: Yeah, definitely. In some countries, um, the far right is definitely gaining ground, up to twenty to thirty percent in some. Some countries, a lot of the countries in the EU have coalition governments, so it's not just the the first-past-the-post where there's only two parties. There's two or three, or in Germany's case, six parties in the parliament. So the far right doesn't seem to get into power really anywhere except for maybe Hungary and Austria. But um, the rise of the, the popularity of the far right puts pressure on the ruling parties to be a little more populist, a little more conservative. So it does have an influence, but I just want to add something interesting about Indiana. There's a place in Germany called Saxony, where there are relatively few foreigners um, in the former communist East Germany, but the opposition in Saxony to refugees and migrants is is, is greater. It seems um, it seems ironic somehow that there's so few foreigners and migrants there, yet the fear and the opposition is the strongest, in the far right in the state of Saxony is called the Alternative for Germany party, AFD, is the strongest party in that state. They get around 30 percent in the polls, and in a state election in September next year, they could well be the strongest party, even stronger than the conservative party of Chancellor Angela Merkel. So that's really got a lot of people worried and upset that a far-right party in Germany, a country that has, of course, its Nazi past that it's always... in in the back of the minds of people in Germany around the world. It's something that's got a lot of people in Germany worried that a far-right party called the AFD could be the strongest party in this one state. And they are pretty much a one-issue party. They're opposed to uh, migration and immigration, especially Muslim. It's a very anti-Muslim party. They're worried about being overrun by foreigners, by Muslims, and that's the reason they're so successful in the state of Saxony right now.
1: So... during the trip, we got to meet with Beatrix von Storch, and I'm probably going to get this wrong what she said, but it was something to the effect of migration isn't isn't a human right. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I want to get your reaction to that. I Safety guess. from persecution
3: is, by definition, a human right. So I think that Um, We need to separate out different kinds of migration. Um, If you are a forced migrant, that is, you're leaving your country because you are in fear of your life. Uh, Under all the U.N. declarations, the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights, the 1951 Convention on Refugees, the 1967 Protocol on Refugees, you have the right to go to a country where you will not be killed or tortured. Um, and I think it's really important that we start that we keep reiterating that principle, because as Americans, we have always upheld that principle until recently. Um, economic migration is a much more complicated question. Um, and whether people have the right to flee poverty is a much more complicated question.
1: Yeah. And John, that's what you see a, a lot,
3: right?
4: Right. And really, when I was on the on the trip with with you and Eric, that's one of the things that really struck me, the similarities between the challenges we have uh, with immigration and what European countries are going through um, are these people, uh, for instance, you know, from West Africa, um, are they are they fleeing economic poverty and do they deserve the protection of of the laws of these of these European countries? Um, they definitely draw a line and a distinction, and that's what's happening in this country right now. Um, Jeff Sessions, before he left as Attorney General. Um, sent down a rule to his immigration judges saying uh, we we should not consider um, you know fleeing violence in your neighborhood or uh, food insecurity as legitimate reasons for granting uh, asylum protection and so you know these uh, urgencies that families are fleeing in Central America uh, are increasingly uh, falling on deaf ears up here and. And, of course, that's, the whole, that's what the debate is about, because the Trump administration says, well, they're scamming the system by coming up here fleeing poverty. But it you know, I've been to Guatemala. I've, I've done the reporting out in Huehuetenango province, and it, it's, it's a matter of, of feeding hungry bellies down there.
1: Yeah, and John, I wanted to get your reaction. You remember when we were on the trip and they were talking about, and Eric just mentioned it again, how when folks were here waiting to be processed, they're getting these payments each month. The U.S., as far as I understand, doesn't do anything like that.
4: No, they don't. Um, uh, you can't if if you are an undocumented uh, immigrant. You can't get food stamps and. Uh, you can't get uh, most public benefits. Uh, your children can go to school, and you can go to the charity hospital and get treated. And so there are complaints that those are big expenses that counties uh, are having to, um, um, to pay. But, uh, but basically, um, the U.S. absolutely does not uh, pay... Immigrants that they send back to their countries of origin, they and I was amazed to hear, in Germany, they pay immigrants to go home, yeah. to keep them home, so they won't come back and cross again, and that, that certainly is not the case with this country.
3: One of the things that I think is really interesting is that there have been studies saying that uh, you know, we do provide some services for refugees who are placed in the United States by the United Nations. Um, we buy them a plane ticket, which they pay back. We offer them uh, some social support and for housing and energy and food and things like that for the first thirty uh, first ninety days and One of the things that that people have learned is that within five years, refugees have paid more in taxes than they took to come here than they took as benefits from the system. Undocumented immigrants pay many of them Social Security because they're using false uh, passports and false Social Security numbers. They are having Social Security taken out of their paychecks, but they will never claim Social Security from the government because they're not eligible for it. So, you know, one question I have had, and I don't know how you measure this, is to what extent are undocumented immigrants in the United States contributed, contributing to keeping Social Security alive?
1: I want to ask you, because you are also on the board for Exodus, so how has that program changed just in the last couple of years?
3: Yeah, so we have seen uh, since the beginning of the Trump administration a dramatic re- um, reduction in the number of refugees admitted to the United States. And this past year, the cap was, I believe, 60,000. That was supposed to be the maximum number of refugees who would be admitted to the U.S. These are people outside the U.S. in camps who will be admitted. Um, But in fact, only 20,000 of them were allowed to enter. Um, So the number of people coming, 20,000, by the way, Germany has 1.5 million, um, a much smaller country. But uh, one of the things that has happened is that because refugee resettlement agencies are paid on a per-arrival basis... This has resulted in a dramatic cut in their budgets. And many people see this as an attack on the infrastructure for refugee resettlement in the United States, that the goal is to close agencies so that refugees can never come into the United States and be resettled. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, At Exodus, we've been really, really fortunate in that we've had to make huge cuts. We laid off half our staff. But um, we have been kept alive by the kindness and the generosity of Indiana residents who donate to Exodus. So, I, I think it's uh, we have been incredibly fortunate to be here, and we're one of the agencies that's surviving.
1: But there was a, there was a plan even to bring some refugees to Bloomington. I remember we did a we did a noon edition on it. But yes, that plan got
3: yeah because uh, uh, under Obama the cap was uh, supposed to raise to a hundred and ten thousand. Um, which is still a tiny, tiny number, actually, 110,000 nationwide. And at that point, we would have, at Exodus, been interested in opening a branch office here in Bloomington um, that would help provide social support to refugees that we could resettle here in the Bloomington area. Obviously, with the reduction in arrivals to 20,000, that that is on hold. Mm-hmm
1: our numbers again if you want to join the program here in the last few minutes 812 855 0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348 and we're on twitter at noon edition
5: yeah i know we're winding down but i guess for me kind of more of the outsider here with with all of you uh, this afternoon where where does the where does the leadership come from this from now where where is everyone looking to is it the united nations is it president trump
3: I think, surprisingly, we've seen a lot of leadership coming out of the private sector. Airbnb, Mm. for example, is helping provide housing for newly arriving refugees. Um, Short term, temporary, but enough to get them into another situation. And they're doing that globally. They're actually hiring a global director of refugee services. the Tent Foundation, which is uh, opened by the founder of Chobani Yogurt, wow. now has like 30 corporations partnering to find employment for refugees in the United States and globally. So at this moment, when when governments seem to be really faltering in how to deal with this, the productive, useful situa- uh, solutions are coming out of the private sector. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Globally, though, we would be looking to the UN.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the u n the u n actually has these um, it 's now sixty five sixty eight million people this year who are forcibly displaced they're all persons of um, that come under the United nations mandate But the U.N. has taken such dramatic um, hits in budgeting that they very often don't have money to support all the refugees that they needed to support. So, for example, there was a period of time when Syrian refugees in Jordan were receiving something like $18 worth of food a month um that's obviously you can't live on that. So the World Food Program is unable to feed all these people, uh, the UN is unable to house all these people. So a lot of times refugees around the
1: world are on their own. Mm-hmm. John from your perspective, what needs to I mean, where do we go in this debate in the US? I mean, obviously we're we're going to see maybe what happens here with the budget and the border wall. What's next?
4: Well, I think everyone needs to take a deep breath about immigration. And, you know, I just, you know, is is it a, a threat to the American way that it seems to be uh, held up as in, in these, um, you know, these, these political races? Um, it was interesting to me, again, um, going back to the trip we just took to um, to Germany and, and, and Croatia, that um, as a way to, to deal with, with immigrants coming to a country, um, you know, to seek asylum, uh, the EU is paying Turkey um, to try to do more to keep um, those immigrants from going into Greece and getting in into the EU, and uh, Italy is doing the same thing uh, in uh, with Libya, and the administration is trying to reach out to Mexico to talk about, um, you know, the first country that they would arrive at to seek asylum. And I wonder how those talks are going. It was interesting to me, as I've been doing my reporting here on the border, um, there actually are a lot of jobs in the maquiladoras, in the Mexican border towns that are looking for workers, and they have are, are, in some cases, uh, appealing to these immigrants, you know, in mexico stay here on the northern border and and work here and i, ju- I just wonder you know if some of the, if that's kind of a fresh way to think about uh some of these these issues of this this great migration that's coming up from the south seeking a better life
1: yeah eric can you i mean for folks who are not as familiar with it can you explain what that turkey deal is really quick
2: um yeah in 2015 about over a million refugees just came in a caravan, basically, up through the Balkans into Germany. And then in March 2016, the German government, EU governments, did a deal together with Turkey to giving Turkey 3 billion euros, over 3.5 billion dollars, to keep most of the refugees in Turkey. So Turkey has kept, as you mentioned earlier, um, I think 3 million refugees, and they got 3 billion euros from EU governments. And that's what took the pressure off um the number of migrants, uh, refugees going in, streaming into the EU, so now they're in Turkey. The, the idea is the closer the Syrian refugees are to their home countries, the less displaced they'll be, and the less comfortable they'll be as well in tents and, and camps that aren't quite as luxurious, perhaps, as in the EU, and they'll, they'll want to go home sooner after the war. They won't be resettled and reintegrated someplace else far, far away in Europe. That's That's the thinking behind it. Whatever, whatever it was, it was kind of a, a dirty deal in a way, but Turkey took it, and the EU was side, uh, heaved a sigh of relief, and that really reduced the numbers from over a million a year down to a few hundred thousand a year. Um, so that's, that's the way that ended.
3: The idea of keeping people pinned in camps until the war ends is, uh, to be frank with you, like nuts, because the average length of stay in a camp now is 17 years. People can't go home for long periods of time. They're in what's called protracted displacement. <clears throat> so the idea that you can warehouse them until whatever war is over and they can return is, is doesn't make any sense. If the Syrian war ended today, it would be a decade before the infrastructure was repaired enough that their economy could absorb that many workers.
2: That's definitely true. But I think as we we also heard from the AFD woman Beatrice von Storch, she said, Germany has a population of 80 million, and there's several hundred million refugees in the world. If Germany took in 80 million refugees and basically doubled the population of the country of Germany, it wouldn't solve the world's problem. So that's, that's the whole issue. These numbers are just so huge and so enormous. And as you mentioned earlier, climate change is going to be a catalyst for even more numbers probably in the next decades. So it, it is a problem that is definitely not going away. It's, it's going to be an issue for a long, long time to come, and it's probably going to become a much bigger issue in the years ahead.
1: Okay, and we're unfortunately going to have to leave it at that because we are out of time for today's Noon Edition. I want to again thank our guests for joining us today, Elizabeth Dunn, Eric Kirschbaum, and John Burnett. Thank you all for being available for today's program. And thanks to our engineer, Mike Pashkash and producer, Patrick McGurr, co-host, Joe Wren. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition.
0: is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.